We continue this shear in Navi today, Jewish history, and today we start a new section of Navi called Shmuel Hanavi, story of the birth of Shmuel Hanavi. It's very similar to the case of the birth of Shimshon, in that just as Shimshon's mother was in Akara, she could not give birth, so too the mother of Shmuel Hanavi. But that's where the similarity ends. This story has a new depth to it that's not found elsewhere. In fact, it is so deep that there are many volumes in the Sifre Kabbalah on the story of the birth of Shmuel Hanavi. The father of Shmuel Hanavi was, his name was Elkanah, and he had two wives. One was Chana, and the second was Penina. When Abed has two wives, the wives are related to each other. They are called a tzora. Each one is called a tzora to the other. That's the Hebrew title. And also, of course, the word tzora means troublesome. Because there generally is jealousy between the wives as to finding favor with the husband. Each one would like to be the favorite wife of the husband. In this case, Hannah was the one that suffered because Penina gave birth to children. She had ten children and Hannah had none. And therefore, Penina considered herself as the superior of the two wives. However, Elkanah liked Hannah better. Each time he would leave home and return, leave home means to go for the sake of Kedusha because he was the greatest person alive then, one of the greatest Sadiqim. He returned, he brought gifts to his family, and he would give Hannah double the amount of the others. And she constantly cried over the fact she had no children. Elkanah said to her, he tried to console her and told her, why cry over it? After all, you are worth more to me than any number of children. I am worth more to you. Wouldn't you consider me as a gain, a benefit? Despite this, she was not consoled. Most important, there's one sentence here which the Gemara dwells on very heavily, and a very interesting aspect. Torah says that Penina, the second wife, teased and tormented Hannah about the fact that she did not have children. She did everything to cause her anguish, sorrow. She kept on making statements that would arouse the deep wound in her heart over the fact that she was childless. Until Hannah could bear it no longer, and she decided to take matters into her own hands, take action. Now first, let's delve into that point. Penina tortured Hannah with words. That doesn't sound nice. In general, the Gemara says that hurting a person's feelings is one of the worst crimes possible. Was Penina really that bad? The Gemara says there were two who committed acts of sin, or seeming sin, and yet their intentions were honorable and pure. The first was Penina. Penina did this to Chana because Penina knew how pure and holy Chana was and she wanted to awaken in her a strong desire to daven, pray to Hashem with more kavana. Naturally, Chana prayed. She constantly prayed to Hashem, but to put more heart into it, Penina made her feel hurt and increased her anguish and thereby the tefillah coming from the depth of a broken heart is that much more valuable. This was the true intention of Penina in hurting the feelings of Hannah. She did it for a good kavana. 
Second, the Gemara says, was the Satan. Recall in the story of Eov, Eov was a tzaddik, righteous. <coughs> Torah says that Eov, the sentence said about Eov was even greater than that said about Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu says, Ki Hashem said, I see that you are very God-fearing. By Eov it says, he was Ish Sarmera, he was good, he was devoid of evil, he feared Hashem, many more adjectives about him. So great was Eov. Suddenly, the Satan came before Hashem and spoke badly about Eov. The Gemara says this was a meeting in heaven on Rosh Hashanah, when the heavenly court convenes, the Satan brings his report, and the Satan said to Hashem, you prefer Eov, you like him because he's a loyal servant of yours, and I say he's not loyal at all, because you have not tested him. He's very wealthy, he has everything to live for, got a lot of wealth, children, a happy family life, test him, take these things away, and then see how loyal he'll be. And so Eov went through a series of tortures where he lost everything he had, he lost his health, he was stricken with a type of leprosy, skin boils, for a period of 12 months, 12 months of Gehenna on earth. Until this passed by, he passed the test, and everything was given back to him. The question is, the Gemara says, why did the Satan do this? The Satan is evil, the angel of evil, he wants to hurt people it seems. Rav Acha, one of the rabbis in the Gemara, made this statement that both Penina and the Satan had good intentions when they seemingly did harm to a person. Penina to Chana and the Satan to Eov. The Satan's intentions were, his claim was, he felt that if Hashem would get to like Eov more than sufficiently, then he would remove his liking of Avraham Avinu. Because, as Avraham himself spoke to Hashem and said, you once made a treaty with Noah. After the flood, Hashem made a treaty with Noah, there will never be any more floods, destruction coming to the earth, and this treaty will last. And then when Avraham came along, and he was a greater tzaddik than Noah, and the treaty with Noah became void, who became the father of the Jews? Avraham So here, there was a fear deep in Avraham heart. And he said to Hashem, as you say, I was a greater tzaddik than Noah, and therefore you dropped him and took me. I'm afraid someday a new tzaddik will arise, you'll drop my treaty, you'll take the treaty with a new one. Meanwhile, my children, my people will be lost. So Hashem said, fear not, because your treaty is one that will last forever. Now, when the Satan saw Eov's greatness, his purity, he was afraid that despite what was said, Perhaps the treaty with Avraham might be broken as was the treaty with Noah. And so he spoke up with the hope to prove to Hashem that Eo was not really as great as Avraham Avinu. This was not done with the intentions of hurting Eo, rather it was done with the intentions of saving, <coughs> elevating the Jewish people. This is what Rav Acha spoke at a lecture in the Gemara. The Gemara says that night, the Satan came to Rav Acha, this angel himself, came to Rav Acha and kissed his feet to show his appreciation for the fact that he had judged them correctly. Uh, Rabbi says, speaks about this point, why did the Satan 
kiss the feet of Rav Acha. Why not his hand? Why not express his appreciation in a different manner? The answer is that there are certain mitzvahs that stand higher than others. Then there are sins that are far below mitzvahs. And yet, there is nothing on earth which can exist in this world without the presence of Hashem in it. Even the Havdil idols, idols which are worthless, which are completely against faith, completely against heaven, yet these idols would become invisible, would cease to exist if there wasn't a heavenly power, Kaviachal, the divine spirit of Hashem in it. And that's why Zorah Kodesh says that idols are called Elohim Acherim, Kel Acher. Even idols carry the name of Hashem to show that everything must have Hashem in it. Now, these are called the lowest level of creation. All of creation is in the form of the human being. The head is the highest, and so on down until the feet is the lowest point. Here, the Satan wanted to show Rav Acha that even when it comes to a thing like Lashon Hara, seemingly, it's the worst sin possible, in Lashon Hara there can still be Kedusha, there can still be holiness. The Lashon Hara he spoke against Eov was for the sake of Kedusha. That's why he kissed the feet of Rav Acha to show that even the feet of anything existing in this world, there is still the Kedusha of Hashem. But here we see, though, the true intentions of Penina in hurting the feelings of Chana, and this led her to the desired result. So one day she made a vow. She prayed to Hashem and said, this vow, this prayer, of course, was said in the Holy Temple, the Mishkan. Now it's important to know that at that time, the Kohen Godot, his name was Eli, Ayin Lamed Yud. He was the Kohen Godot at the time in the temporary Holy Temple in Shiloh, and he was sitting there when this strange woman came in, Hannah. She stood there, she prayed to Hashem, and she made this special vow. Hashem, if you will give me a son, then I promise to return him to you. Not to keep him for myself, I let him serve you in the Holy Temple throughout his entire life in the form of a Nazir, a Nazirite, who will be separated from people will be dedicated completely to your service in the Holy Temple. She increased the tempo of her tefillah, of her prayer, and Eli the Kohen Gadol was watching this woman. He saw that her lips were moving, and yet no sound came from them. And he thought that she must be drunk. He turned to her angrily, and he said, How do you dare come into here a woman drunk? This is sacrilege in the Holy Temple. Get rid of your wine if you want to come in here. Hannah replied, No, my master. Lo Adoni, I'm sorry. It's that I'm heartbroken. I never drank any intoxicating beverage. I came to pour forth my heart to Hashem, praying for a child. Do not misjudge me. Do not condemn me to something I'm entirely innocent of. Eli felt sorry that he had suspected her wrongly, and so he said to her, Return home, I will pray for you too, and I assure you, this tefillah will be answered. Before we go further again, there are a lot of important points, interesting points to elaborate on. When it says that Chana prayed to Hashem, throughout the Torah we find the word tefillah la Hashem, a prayer to Hashem, or tefillah el Hashem, 
El means two also. Case of Chana, it says, but the Spalel Al Hashem. She prayed above Hashem. To pray above Hashem, how does a person rise above Hashem? Now, very briefly, there are four names of Hashem corresponding to the four levels of the world. Lowest is the Olam HaAsiyah, that's this earthly world. The next is the Olam HaYetzirah, the world of the angels. The third is Olam HaBriah, that's called the world of the throne of Hashem. The Kriya Shema corresponds to that. Since it's the throne, therefore we sit during the saying of Kriya Shema. Above that, the highest is the Olam HaTzilus. Now these worlds too, as we mentioned also, everything comes in the form of male and female. Even in heavenly worlds too. We say, Hashem the King, the Spirit of Hashem, the Queen. Kaviyachal, of course, it's all one. Hashem Echad, Hashem and His Spirit are one naturally. It's only one Hashem. But still, there is that division used. And when we speak about male and female in a spiritual sense, there is no comparison whatsoever, chas to the physical sense at all. It refers to a different type of term. Male, who offers, who nourishes, who provides, female who receives. This is the shefa, the blessings that come from heaven, that give nourishment to the entire world. Now, in these worlds, too, the olam habria is the feminine compared to the Olamat Silos, the masculine. These refer to also the name of Hashem, which comes in four different forms. Lowest world, the Shem Yudke Vovke is Shem Bon, a certain combination of the letters of Hashem's name. We won't go into that because we don't want to be accused of speaking Kabbalah. The lowest is Bon, the next is Shem Ma, combination of Yudke Vovke forming the number 45. Above that is Shem Sog, that's the world of the throne, the feminine world, Sog, which is 63. But Silos, top is 72. Total of Beis, Lamed Beis, 232, which stands for the fact, Rachmona Libaboy, Hashem desires a person's heart. The Zayde Kodesh says that, but the Spalel Chana Al Hashem, the lower worlds, we say lower, of course, you mean to say still the name of Hashem, in a lower form, is the name Bon and Mo which correspond to Vov K. Above that, we come to a higher sphere, that's the Shem Sog, feminine world, 63, and that's called Al Hashem, above the lower worlds of Hashem. Chana is Bigimetria, numerically 63, which means that she was in the realm, the level of that upper world, again feminine, and with the spell Al Hashem, she rose to a point where she could pray above the lower worlds, and she had to get to that point. Now, to show this, even without Kabbalah, the Gemara itself says that there are three things a person cannot acquire through zechus, through good deeds, or through effort, or even in most cases through prayer. Those three things are life, giving birth, livelihood, parnasa, and children. These three things are so difficult to attain that they depend purely upon mazel. Now, mazel in English would mean luck. According to our faith, there's no such thing as luck. Mazlo, as Lady Kodesh says, means referring to above 
the regular levels of tefillah and schus, this goes to the higher world of Bina. And therefore, in fact, Mazlot comes from, which is Bigimati HaChachmo, HaChachmo Techayes Baleha, life comes from above. Chachmo, or Koachmo, Koachmo, the power above the more, the lower world. These three depend upon Mazlot, and that's why Chana had to rise up above to this higher level, at the spal al Hashem, again, this is Navi, a Pasuk in Navi, again, not Kabbalah. I don't know why we have to defend ourselves against Kabbalah, but actually the Rizal says that the study of Kabbalah is the highest possible study, not as far as knowledge only, but as far as the mitzvah study. Mitzvah of studying Kabbalah is much higher and rewarding than any other facet of Torah. We see from this sentence, too, that the Pasuk itself says that Hanat prayed above the regular level of Kedusha of Hashem, and this was necessary in order to attain the birth of a child. Now, she vowed, she prayed to Hashem. Her claim was, she said, what did you create me for? A woman's function in life is to bring children, to perpetuate the human race, to bring children that will continue to serve Hashem. Now, if I am a human being, then certainly I should be fruitful and die also. Humans die. I'm willing to go through that. If I am not a human being, I am from the upper world, I cannot have children just as angels cannot multiply, then I insist I should never experience death. But if I was given a choice, I would rather die with the knowledge that I brought children into this world. This was a very unselfish type of tefillah, and of course, it had its effect. Now, as we said, when Eli saw Hannah praying, he thought she was drunk. Here the Gemara tells us that Chana is the essence of tefillah, of prayer. We learn many of the dinim, the laws of prayer, from Chana herself. The fact that she davened, she prayed with her lips moving, but without a sound coming, this teaches us, this is the origin of the law, that during Shemona Esrei, the Amida, the silent prayer, it is forbidden for a person to allow his voice to be heard. During the Shemona Esrei, a person must be completely silent where even he himself cannot hear his own voice. But to have his mouth closed and just read as he would Lahavdil magazine, this too is worthless. The lips must move and yet no sound should come from them. This is the perfection of tefillah according to Din. And this is what Chana did. There's an entire section of Gemara based upon the laws of tefillah which are learned from Chana. Note, it would seem embarrassing. Tefillah, a shul is made for men. Women are relegated to the side with a curtain to separate them, to hide them. And yet when it comes to tefillah, we find that it was Chana who taught all men, not ordinary men, but the great rabbis in later generations, how to daven. Very important to include here a word, an item, that would illustrate this so much more strongly. We know that the Tzaddik Emes, the holiest Tzaddik that exists, has the greatest power of prayer, of tefillah. How can we bring a better example than Rabbeinu Zal himself? Rabbeinu Zal, who is one of the, let us say, minimizes greatness, one of the greatest tzaddikim of all time since creation, at least one of the greatest. Now, at that time, one of his closest <coughs> students, who 
was feeling very badly because his child, a very young child, was lying in the crib, extremely ill, and there was the suspicion that the child may pass away. His wife cried to him, you have a source of help. Why don't you go to Rabbeinazal and ask him to be misbelled for us? Surely his tefillah will help. His answer was, I go to Rabbeinazal only for spiritual assistance. I'm afraid to bother him for a thing which is physical. And she cried, a child is physical? A life of a Jew is physical? How can you even think that? So he said, fine, you're right, I'll go. He came to Rabbeinazal. He cried before him, told Abenazel his child was very deadly ill. Abenazel said, I know. Abenazel had the power of nevuah, of prophecy. He could see everything that went on around. He said, I know. I checked in heaven, and I found that the prognosis of your child is negative, meaning the child must die. I cannot help you. I can only tell you what the result is. This Talmud went back to his wife, and he told her, I went to Rabbeinazal. Rabbeinazal knows what the heavenly court has decided. He told me it's too late. This is the heavenly decision. So she said, why should I wait until tomorrow to cry over my child after he passes away? Let me use that power of tears now. And she sat down by the crib and she poured out her heart the entire night, crying to Hashem, screaming to Hashem for help. The next morning, the student came to Rabbeinazel, brokenheartedly. Rabbeinazel greeted him with a smile. And he said to him, you never can tell the power of a woman's tefillah, because I saw the case in heaven. Now, not only did they rip up the Xerah decree against the child, but they issued a new one. It will get better, completely cured, but it will also lead a very, very long life. He was granted Arichas Yaman. And this child did live close to 100 years old. This is an example, comparatively contemporary time, of the power of tefillah in a woman. That's how we can understand why we learn from Hannah the laws of tefillah. Now, she came home and she gave birth to a son. She called his son Shmuel, which means Hashem heard, listened, heard my tefillah, he accepted it. And therefore, she said, I shall keep my vow. At the end of two years' time, he was completely raised, weaned. She brought him to the base Amikdash, and she said to Eli, I give you my son now according to my promise, and I want you to keep him as your assistant in the base Amikdash. But I ask that you have patience with him, because I know that the anger of a tzaddik can bring instant death. If he might do something that might displease you, and you may become angry with him and give him a harsh look, he may die. Now, I don't want you to tell me that if he does, I'll have another child. Because I prayed for this son, this son and no other. This is the son I want. Eli promised her to be patient with him, and, of course, Shmuel Hanavi was raised in the Beis Amikdash next to Eli. And from there, he rose higher and higher in Kedusha. 
he was only two years old at the time he came there, we find gradually how he became elevated to a point, or even Pasuk and Tillam, which says, Moshe v'yaharon b'chohanov u'shmuel b'korei shmo. That Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron are coined together would compare to Shmuel Hanavi in certain respects. We'll discuss that more later on, that sentence, because the Zorah Kodesh says it's impossible to accept its face value. No one was greater than Moshe Rabbeinu himself. But still, we can see the heights that Shmuel Hanavi reached. Now, after Hanak came back, she was blessed with a son, and this sort of broke the gates. It broke the barrier that stopped her. Once she was broken from that chorus, she was no longer barren, she now began to give birth. But somehow, she felt a resentment against Penina. The fact that Penina had tormented her until now, and though she understood that there was no real harm intended by Penina, her feelings had been hurt. And when a tzaddik or a tzaddikus is hurt, there must be a punishment for it. So the Medrash says that she gave birth to children. Every time she gave birth to a child, to one child, two children of Penina died at the same time. So after the first child, she now had one, Penina had eight. After the second child, she had two, Penina had six. After the fourth child, she had four, and Penina had two. Now when she became pregnant, about to give birth the fifth time, Penina came crying before her and said, that's enough. You'll tear my life away if you give birth. If you give birth, I know my last two children will die. And therefore, you've got to make a decision. Chana said, there's only one way to solve this problem. I will accept your two children as mine. I will adopt them as mine. That way, their life can be saved. The says this is why it says that, consequently, Hannah had seven children. Actually, she gave birth to only five. Because she adopted the two children of Penina, not that she took them away from Penina, of course, she accepted them under her name, under her wing, and therefore it was listed as though she gave birth to seven children. The Pusik says she had seven children, but in fact, there were five and two. Now, following this, the children of Eli, Eli had two sons, and these two sons committed certain acts in the Beis HaMikdash with the karbonos, the sacrifices that were brought that displeased Hashem. It's very difficult to explain this because in these sentences we find it says their sin was of a, a very high caliber, very serious type of sin. The karbonos, the sacrifices, were not done properly by them. They hurt people who brought these sacrifices and therefore as a result the decision in heaven was to punish them and to punish Eli too. The fact that these two sons must die and that from Eli the house of Eli would be wiped out. Wiped out meaning that there'd never be any elders from the house of Eli or any rabbis coming from the house of Eli. No one consequently later generations would be given smicha who came from the house of Eli. No one will get the degree of rabbi. We find a number of rabbis in the Gemara who came from the house of Eli, and we'll discuss later how that was possible. Gemara, of course, explains that. There's a long discussion about that item. Now, first, 
there's a story very briefly about the beginning, the birth of prophecy in Shmuel Hanavi. This too is directly from the Navi itself. Where one day, Eli was lying in bed. His bed was closest to the Holy Ark. The voice of Hashem, the voice of prophecy, came from the Holy Ark always. And the outside room, that means much further distant from the Holy Ark, was lying Shmuel Hanavi, the child. At night, suddenly Shmuel heard the voice of Hashem calling him. Now, since he had never heard a Nevoah before, he could not recognize this as a heavenly voice. It was strange, but he could not recognize it as the voice of Hashem. And so he ran quickly to Eli, since they were alone in the Holy Temple, and he said to Eli, Yes, my master, you have summoned me, here I am. And Eli said to him, I didn't call you, go back to sleep. Shmuel went back, lay down again. Again Hashem called to Shmuel, again he jumped quickly, very obediently ran to Eli, and said, I am here, you called me. Again he told him, return to your bed. Third time this happened, Eli understood that Shmuel Anavi was ready for prophecy, ready to receive a mantle, the cloak of holiness, and hearing the voice of Hashem speak to him. So he said to Shmuel Anavi, go back to your bed, the next time you hear a voice, stand up and say, Daber Hashem, speak Hashem, because your servant is listening. He lay down again, and he heard Hashem call him. He jumped up and said, speak, your servant is listening. He could not take a chance in referring to the voice as Hashem. If it was Hashem, he said, speak, your servant is listening. If he was not worthy of it, perhaps Eli overestimated him, he was afraid to call this voice Hashem. Even if it would be an angel, it would still be sacrilegious to call an angel Hashem. And so he said, speak, because your servant is listening. This time the voice of Hashem revealed itself to Shmuel Anavi and said, your first prophecy is a sad one. I'm letting you know now that Eli's family will be wiped out as far as leadership is concerned. His sons will have to pay the top penalty. And in the future, no sacrifices the holy temple will be sufficient to forgive for the sins of the house of Eli. This is forever afterwards. There's no way to get these sins forgiven. I'm going to repay the house of Eli, the family of Eli, for what they did in the holy temple. Shmuel lay down to sleep. Next morning he was afraid to speak to Eli about what he had heard. Such a harsh report. Eli called to him. And Shmuel replied, yes, I am here. Eli said, what did Hashem say to you? Don't dare to lie or to hide one iota of this statement of prophecy. Because if you do, chas v'shalom, it will come back to you. Shmuel was afraid. He spoke to Eli, told him every word that he had heard. And Eli answered, whatever Hashem desires to do, he will do, and I accept it. Then on, Shmuel became famous among the Jews. He became greater, his fame spread as a Navi, and he was recognized as the future leader of the Jews. Of course, the Jews were in a sad state at the time. The Flishtim, the Philistines, were at their mightiest militarily, and war was pending at that moment. Now, to go back to this point, the Gemara says that the curse 
that was placed upon the family of Eli was, there will never be a Zokain, an old person in the family of Eli, meaning they will die young. And, two, there will not be a Zokain, means there will not be a Chacham, or a rabbi among them. The Gemara says this was fact. The family of Eli, the descendants of Eli, died very young. Rabbi Yochanan once came to a city, they told him that the people in that city died at the age of 18. What can they do to stop that? And he said they must come from the family of Eli. If so, how do we remove that curse? He said, the prophecy stated, that never will sacrifices remove the sin of the house of Eli. But if you give tzedakah, gemilas chasodim, and study of Torah, that will add long life. This they did, and they called their children after Rabbi Yochanan since then because he had saved their lives, he had prolonged their lives. The Gemara says those who study Torah lived to a longer life. Those who studied Torah and gave gemilas chasodim too, did stucker, good deeds, they lived still longer. The Gemara tells cases of certain rabbis lived to the age of 40, some lived to the age of 60 because they had done more stucker than the others. But in all cases, though, we find that those who came from the house of Eli could not get smicha. The rabbis of the Gemara all were, of course, very holy, very great tzaddikim, yet not everyone received the title rabbi. There are some we find with just their name alone without the word rabbi preceding it. There were times when their rabbis tried in vain to give them smicha and it just couldn't work out. They could not get together three rabbis at a time to give smicha. They discovered the reason was because these were from the house of Eli. They were being prevented from heaven from getting this smicha, this degree. This was the curse of Eli, which the Gemara could be cured through Torah and through Gemilas HaSodom. So great is the mitzvah of studying Torah, mitzvah of giving tzedakah, of helping others, but even when there is a heavenly curse that is given as an eternal one, a permanent one, even this too can be overcome through gemilas chasodim, tzedakah and helping a Jew. As to this, that we should turn ourselves to expend every effort that we can in the study of Torah for one thing, and in seeing that if we are more fortunate than others, we should give of ourselves to help those less fortunate, especially if we can combine both, the study of Torah and Stoker, meaning to give Stoker to Tomidei Chachamim, to those who study Torah, this means we get credit for part of their study of Torah, plus the mitzvah of Stoker. in doing that mitzvah wholeheartedly, the Torah says that Yerushalayim, it's Stoker Tipodeh, Yerushalayim will be redeemed and rebuilt, and the Geula will come through the mitzvah of Stokah. Let's bend our efforts towards that goal, and we should be Zohar in our time to see the rebuilding of Yerushalayim, the Beis HaMikdosh, the Vias, Mashiach, the Keno, and the Amen. Amen.